we're going to be able to see into things that we've never been able to see before. And we're going to see a lot of problems that only a human is best capable of solving. But that the great thing, I think, when you talk about the future is that humans probably got some augmented equipment, whether they're small machines or big machines, that will probably help them with those tasks so they can get it done safer, faster and more efficiently. Welcome to the future of a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. Eric, if I can start with you, you've been a partner at Lemnos, a managing partner at Klein Venture Partners. Prior to that, a VP for Advanced Engineering of Nokia and a VP of Java Marketing at Sun Microsystems. Really like that combo of hardware and software experience that you have over dozens of years. And over that time, you've built some of the most well-known products and probably advised, I don't know, how many companies have you advised over the years? I think I've invested and advised over 100 companies, which sounds crazy. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to work on some iconic products over the years. I worked on the original Macintosh PowerBooks and the first PowerPC Macs. I got to work on some of the original Palm Pilots when I was at Palm. Uh, started a little video game company called Bungie. Uh, helped start that <laughs> with some great folks, uh, makers of the Halo universe. So yeah, I've had a, a great career, but hardware has always been a big part of that and weaved into my narrative. Thank you. And thanks for being here with us. Really excited to get your perspective from all that experience that you have. As we look forward to the future, what does this space look like 10 to 20 years from now? When we think about the future, we think about like the Jetsons. <laughs> a lot of things probably come to mind, but as experts in the space, as we project forward, what does the future of construction look like to both of you? Eric, let's start with you. Yeah, I think there, an interesting way to do that is just to take a bunch of technologies and project them into the future, but overlay them into construction. Right. And you can do things. And I'll start with a simple example. If you look at the future of mixed reality, right, the, the opportunities here are huge. Uh, Mitch, as you know, like one of the big things is, is coordination on a job site and knowing that the job's been done right. And, and the right is there's this interesting term, BIM, right, that somebody designed it a certain way. But all through that process, so many different tradespeople come to work on a project. And you can see you can start to imagine in the future where you're going to be able to put on an augmented reality pair of glasses and really see the data behind the actual physical object, right? We talk a lot about digital twinning, right? This idea that there's a, a digital version. Well, the digital version starts with what we intended the building or the property to be. But being able to look into that and see both what was expected and what's reality, because when <laughs> a construction site, things change, change orders come in, things don't necessarily always go the way you expect. But Another area is around advanced manufacturing, right, where we talk about a lot in the construction business about bringing more things pre-assembled to a site and also the ability in the future to start, you know, taking very raw pieces and doing sub-assembly manufacturing right on site, right, where you can assemble, you know, walls, parts of the building, a lot of things. So this both more prefab coming in completely, you know, dialed into the, the original building specification or building things on site, aka 3D printing, as I think we back this out to a little bit. But uh, I've seen amazing stuff where we're, you're 3D printing, but you're using concrete, right? You're using other substances. This isn't just plastics in the future. 
And then one that I think is near and dear to a lot of our hearts is robotics and automation is augmenting human labor and using robots to, whether it's the mundane or the thing that just takes, you know, it's a thousand rivets kind of thing, bringing the robotics in to help accomplish tasks. Because one of the biggest challenges we face in construction is labor. It's actually that we don't have enough labor for the amount of construction that needs to get done. So augmentation allows us to get more done in an era where we're going to be challenged to find enough people to build what we need to build. Tony Tran, founder at Peer Inc., is aiming to accelerate the metaverse with computing power, software, and hardware. He has a roadmap into 2030 that starts with the social metaverse in 2022, the ambient metaverse in 2025, and the singularity metaverse in 2030. Here's what he had to say. Hi, I'm Tony Tran with Peer Inc. And today I'll be answering questions. What does the metaverse look like 10 to 20 years from now? Well, in the simplest embodiment, the metaverse will exist as a three-dimensional expansion of the web that we know and love today. Like radio waves that's presently all around us, and we need a, some sort of an interface to actually translate that into either sound or visual or images. The metaverse content will exist everywhere and connect everything. And so it's really like a merging of the present web that we know, all of the data that's on the web, plus all of the connected devices, and then map that against the physical world. So it would create basically an environment where it's nearly like we are jacked in. We would live in a world where we're always connected to the metaverse by a wearable, which includes earbuds, smartwatches, and AR glasses that combines those two different devices into one. And then that's how we would be jacked in, sort of, this metaverse 10 to 20 years from now. As far as just a quick intro, Dudley founded the virtual influencer agency, the world's first virtual influencer avatar and metaverse marketing agency where he's head of research and virtual development. He's also an expert research and technology director at the Live and Breathe Agency, which has been around for 30 years. He leads avatar and metaverse integration strategies there, in addition to AI and data insights. We've listened to some of his webinars on the metaverse, NFTs and virtual humans. What are some of the key differentiators that kind of define the metaverse of today or define the metaverse and the changes that will happen. There's that great point from William Gibson, which always says that the technologies there is just not distributed yet. And I think in a lot of ways, when if people go on into these worlds that have never been onto, they'll be amazed at what's happening. There was a conversation in the press saying, you know, is the metaverse a real thing? And you had a lot of journalists saying it wasn't. I have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, you ask practically anybody under 25 and they're like, I'm in the metaverse every day. You know, what are these boomers talking about? So that isn't even a question. For the future, I mean, I mean, what I'm really excited about is the advancements within AI. We create avatars. That's our business, right? Creating avatars. And what I'm really excited about is when AR can get to a point where your avatar can actually engage with other avatars and can, while you're not using it, 
do work for you. It can find the music you like. It can perhaps see people, oh, Dudley, this person's into this, this, and this. I think that you might really like them. It can effectively be your surrogate when you're not there. That is something which I think is a long way in the future, but that's something I'm super, super excited about, is actually having an agent that works for you. At its simplest form, it's something like Google Duplex, where it will ring up you know, a restaurant and book for you. <laughs> but there's absolutely no reason that you can't give an AI all of your information. Keep it. It doesn't have to be in a cloud. It can be on your desktop. Keep it. And then it will go out and find and interact for you and find what you want. I'm Jocelyn Bocaro. I'm the director of mobile voting with Tusk Philanthropies, and I'm also a former election administrator. I ran elections in the city and county of Denver, as well as in a suburban Cincinnati County in Ohio. Democracy right now is imperiled. Uh, partisan gerrymandering, low voter turnout in primaries and non-presidential elections, and increasing distrust in the election outcome have created a crisis that we have to solve quickly. The good news is that technology can help us solve some of this. Emerging technology like mobile voting can help make access easier without sacrificing security and can help us increase turnout in all elections in the future. And with end-to-end -end verification, mobile voting and even other forms of voting will be more transparent so that voters can verify for themselves that everything is working the way it's supposed to and help restore trust in the process. If we succeed in increasing turnout and making our elections more transparent in the next 10 to 20 years, we should see the voting process completely transform. Very few voters will still be visiting polling places on election day. Most voters will be able to vote on their smart devices, whatever form those take in 10 to 20 years. And voters will be able to closely track how their ballot is received and counted. Results will be ready faster and turnout and participation will be fully trackable in real time through public bulletin boards. Technology can also make it easier for voters to learn about elections and access their ballots. Voting on a smartphone and mobile devices will make it easier to access the ballot for all voters, but especially for those who face barriers to voting today, like voters with disabilities or voters in remote locations. We know that friction in the voting process results in fewer votes cast. Elections happen at least once per year in most states, but the vast majority of the country does not participate except every four years. Most voters only vote when they feel informed about what's on the ballot, yet we do a very poor job arming voters with information except during presidential elections. Technology can help transform that. Consider the notifications we receive when a new TV or podcast episode is available. Imagine the same notifications when your ballot is ready to view. You open your voting app on your smartphone using your digital ID. Once your ballot is open, you may decide you wanna learn more about each of the candidates or questions on your ballot. So you simply click through each name and learn more about their top issues, their resume, who's supporting them, and even answers to questions on issues that are important to you. After you've done your research, you can mark your ballot on your device and submit it. No need to sign an affidavit or provide more ID with your ballot since you've already used a digital identification process to access your ballot in the first place. Once it's submitted, you can track it through the process, making sure it's received correctly and receive notifications when it's been counted. When the voting period's over, complete results will be available in a matter of minutes, with the tabulation process completely viewable to the public through an online bulletin board. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Katrina Stevens, 
Welcome, Katrina. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode focused on the future of education. Such a fascinating topic given how much has changed in the last decade with all this digital transformation. Um, how much has changed in the last two years? So thinking about what the future holds is really exciting. Excited to have you not only as an experienced educator, but a leader and a thought leader. For those who don't know Katrina, um, would you care to give the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So I started my career as an educator. I was in classrooms for um, close to two decades before I started getting interested in how do we create things for schools. Right now, I am the CEO and president for the Tech Interactive. And so I run a science center. It's family-friendly. We focus primarily on 8 to 18. And what we do is we teach problem-solving skills. So how do kids understand how Silicon Valley works and innovation in general, and how do they solve those kinds of problems? So we have kids who come in and they It's also about taking the complex ideas and making them simple and engaging for folks. So it's sort of like disguising learning through play. If we look forward, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, like what do we see changing dramatically? You mentioned some of the challenges of today, but give us 10 to 20 years. What do you think education will be like for, you know, K through 12 and beyond? So I want to answer that question two ways. So there's the question of like what I hope and could happen and what I worry. <laughs> so I worry that even though we've had this, we had a worldwide experiment that we've never would have planned intentionally, but did we learn anything? You know, and there are schools that are, are that are essentially like, hey, that's over. <laughs> like we're back to and without actually changing any any practice. And you know, you hear this all the time, but the topics and the the content is exactly the same as what we were teaching 100 plus years ago. So even though we've had lots, many, many, many movements and many moments where we thought education was going to change significantly, it's stubborn. You know, like on, on the macro level, we are not actually <laughs> moving in, in the way. So, But I'm hoping even things like right, right now, I think one of our biggest problems is that we've designed education in K-12 for adults. It's not designed for kids. If you think about it, it's um, it's about caretaking. So it's babysitting. Like it's designed around the work day. It's not designed around when kids learn best. Younger kids learn best in the earlier in the morning. They're if, if you have children, they're up six a.m. and they are ready to go. <laughs> if you work with teens, not so much. <laughs> you know, like like the brain actually has different development in terms of attention. But we do our, our we do our busing. All of our when our days are scheduled, it's based on busing, and so. The younger kids actually start school later usually, and, and high school kids are like can be starting school at like 7.15 in the morning. So that's an example. We're also designing our classes around, and I was a teacher for a long time, and so I completely understand this, and I was, you know, and I was an administrator as well. So it's very complex. But we designed the day around the, uh, what's easier for teachers. You know, it's sort of like, I know math. I'm, I have my math block. I have my content, and I'm going to teach all of the kids at once. But that's not how we learn. That's not how kids learn. And just because you're the same age, and actually you might not even be the same age because we do, like New Zealand has kids come in every three months when they're younger, because developmentally three months is actually a big deal when you're, when you're three, four, five. In the U.S., it's a cutoff, and then you're in, in, in the same classroom. But we are, we are not tailoring that education. And there's real potential, you know, given the, the level of ability for technology to be able to give insights to teachers for them to be able to adjust But right now, it's still really intensive. It takes a lot of time for teachers. They still are having to take all the different kinds of tools that they're using and figure out how those connect and what that actually means about changing something for a particular child. And it's also, on a high school level, driven by teacher passion. I was an English teacher. 
I love books. <laughs> you can see that. <laughs> yeah. And so I love teaching books, you know, and so like I, I trained, you know, to teach English and I, you know, that's what I love to do. The world isn't organized that way. The world is organized around, here's a client, here, let's talk about climate and let's talk about how all of the different kinds of components, how to use math for that, how to use storytelling, how to use those. And that, that's really hard. It's harder for teachers to know how to be able to create that kind of project-based um, calendar and scheduling. So I understand the challenge of that. But if we really, really want all kids to learn, we need to start shifting and be driven by how kids think about things. Right? Young people come into the world, little kids, they love to learn. I mean, if you, they, they play and they, they, they learn through play, which is actually why I love working at a science center. And somehow by middle school, we've knocked it out of them, that joy and that interest. I think it is because it's like, okay, go sit in the seat for <laughs> for many hours when that's not how, like, in terms of human development, that is not appropriate for little kids. Little kids actually should be moving. So there's a lot of that that I'm hoping that we start to pay attention to as we move forward. The other trend that I that I do actually see, and I think will stick, is paying more attention to a whole child. You know, this idea, I, there's been a lot of attention to like mental health and social emotional well-being right now. Um, now we've had phases of that, but I think that, like I remember the last whole child movement, but I, I think that some pieces of this are going to, I think, one, because we understand much more about how the brain works and how if you are dealing with things outside of the school, how those impact you literally not, your brain can't absorb and can't function as well. So I think we're going to start seeing more, more schools uh, paying more attention to that as well. Hey, this is Alex Young, the founder and CEO at Verti and former trauma and orthopedic surgeon. What does education look like 10 to 20 years from now? And what might be really different to our kids of all ages? Well, in 10 to 20 years, we're going to be looking at a big evolution in the learning space. We're going to be looking at technologies that we're seeing today, like virtual reality and augmented reality in the metaverse and AI and blockchain, all much, much more mature and really applying these to solve real world problems. We're seeing a little bit of that now, but I suspect in the future, these will be integrated into the core curriculum of most education settings, whether that's at schools or corporates. And one example of that is how we can actually immerse people in real world stressful environments before they get there. So whether that is a stressful sales call where a customer is argumentative and the sales professional needs to actually navigate some of the objections, stick to a framework and win them over to practice their soft skills under pressure, or whether it's a school student who can really be transported into a work experience environment, perhaps in an operating theatre if they want to do medicine, in a much more meaningful and relevant way than what they might get access to now. And what that's going to do is really democratise access to some of these skills that are only learnt on the job. And if we think about books like Mastery or Carol Dweck's The Growth Mindset, really a lot of learning is about repetition and stretching your brain and your memory muscles in order to learn things as quickly as possible. There's a term called experiential learning, which is basically learning through experience. Technologies like AI and the metaverse can put people into these situations that mimic the real world, but allow it to be reproducible and for training to be delivered in a safe space where people can fail and develop that growth mindset and reflect on what they could do better next time, and then immediately jump back in and better their scores and better their ability to get better really, really quickly. And what this means for both learners and corporate educators is that your learning cycle and the time it takes to learn anything can be massively reduced. And for some things like soft skills, which are a little bit esoteric in how they're taught, they lack data and they're quite subjectively assessed, this can have data applied to it. And we can really analyze what 
good soft skills looks like, whether that's leadership, whether it's communication skills, whether it's providing feedback in a corporate setting or developing empathy, we can actually start to understand what the best communicators look like, what the best and most appropriate way to deliver feedback is, and look at any biases in that process by, by actually looking at the data rather than just seeing that happen in the real world where a lot of that information is lost. And that's really important for instigating behavior change, for consolidating long-term memories, and for really making learning meaningful and improving people's real workforce skills for the future of work. Hi, my name is Rob Tiffany. I got my start with the Internet of Things back in the 90s, monitoring vending machines, you know, tracking inventory and things like that. Today, I'm leading a company called Sustainable Logics, where I'm using digital twin and industrial IoT technology not for commercial purposes, but to tackle the biggest challenges in society today, kind of focused on those 17 sustainable development goals outlined by the United Nations to tackle things like hunger and poverty and climate issues, water, things like that. So what are aspects of IoT that are open to innovation? I think some of the biggest innovations right now on the data side, once you've captured that telemetry data from your IoT endpoints, is around uh technology concept called digital twins. And so that's basically modeling a physical asset entity or process uh, digitally as a digital representation of that. And so that's a great way to understand and apply analytics to things that are in the real world. And so industrial digital twins are something I've seen for years uh, in the manufacturing space. A lot of that grew from manufacturing and from NASA, but I'd say Lately, here in 2022, I see the words digital twin almost every day out there in the media. So I know that technology is going mainstream and it's really innovative. It's a great way to wrap your head around all those things that you're monitoring. What's IoT going to look like 10 to 20 years from now? Well, if things go well, we won't be saying IoT anymore. It'll just disappear into the background. It'll fade back into the fabric of things. You know, right now, you know, like in the early days of any kind of technology revolution, there's lots of hype. You're always talking about it every day. It's new. It's exciting. We're right now, we're either building new products that have compute, storage, power, networking baked into them. But the most part in the industrial space, particularly, we're retrofitting old things and applying sensors and things like that to, to machines to get more insights from them and pulling data from different sources. And in the industrial space, you know, they don't get rid of old machines really quickly. They might be hanging around for decades. So we're gonna spend a lot of time retrofitting. But over time, these old machines that are having to retrofit, the newer versions of those machines, those things that make other machines, things in factories or airplanes or bullet trains or cars, all kinds of stuff, they're gonna start having those IoT-ish capabilities baked into them at time of manufacturing. And so while it's a big deal now to retrofit them, as we retire older products over time, the newer ones that are gonna start coming out in the coming years, will have that capability baked into them right out of the box with connectivity and everything. And so when you buy whatever that product is, it will wake up that first time, make a connection and start sending telemetry about its health.
great. Let's start with some introductions. Caroline, if we can start with you, if you can tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your experience in the space of space. Yeah, absolutely. So I am really a space nerd at heart. I didn't uh, come out of the space nerd closet as I term it until I did my first internship at NASA, where I realized that I could have a future in space. I could contribute to this that growing up, I didn't realize was something that I could work in and spend my time and my career in. And so, you know, I started out on the science side of things in astrobiology, trying to understand how we would look for life um, on other celestial bodies, but really have spent all of my career focused, focused after that on enabling us to grow the space economy. So working in market analysis and consulting, working with a lot of different companies and governments in the sector, then worked more on the physical side of things. I wanted to start being able to touch my work rather than it just being on the computer. So worked in building ground stations, ground uh, antennas to communicate with satellites around the world so that satellite operators didn't have to each build their own, but they could tap into a more global resource. Uh, And what I do now is working on the sustainability of space, working with satellite operators to plan ahead, make sure that we have access to space, not just today and tomorrow, but really for the the infinite future ahead. And, and we can continue to benefit from this resource to working to make sure that we, we change the way that we operate in space to get a lot more out of it. Let's talk about that future a little bit more. So we're here today, but, you know, in, in space, you think probably think in terms of, you know, decades, right? But what do we anticipate the space economy being like 20 to 40 years from now? We know that it's predicted to be big, but what are some thoughts about what that future looks like? My vision is uh, maybe a bit more sci-fi. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, where we can get, if we really address the problems as, as we've identified them today, which involves a lot of different players across the industry, across academia, across policy, we can get into that. But I see this future of space where there's a more robust, dynamic interconnected activity in space. Right now, satellites are out there on their own, but I think for us to deliver more value, we need to be able to provide services to those spacecraft. We need to have different orbiting platforms that enable much more research to occur in space that then can drive value back on Earth, whether that's to cosmetics or biopharma or or whatever that application might be. Having those established resources, being able to lower the risk it's a huge thing that investors come to of like, there's so much risk involved in space. So, you know, in 20 and 30 years, understanding that better, managing that better. But yeah, I really envision this sort of buzzing space economy where I see satellites moving around autonomously, servicing others, having resources in space, having an outpost on the moon. There's so much potential. And it's also going to create new applications in space. You know, as we've moved over time, it started with communications, which is great. In the 90s, we saw companies say, wow, we could also take pictures from space. And there's so much analytics that that drives back on Earth. What we've been able to achieve with GPS, what we've been able to achieve with asset tracking, right? Understand which ships are where. So there's so many new untapped things that could exist in the space economy in 30 years uh, that it's almost hard to envision really what those could be. I'm Adrian Manjuka, and I'm the Vice President of Infrastructure at Voyager Space. Uh, That basically means I work on our space station portfolio. Infrastructure basically means these big long-term investments that you see return on 
based upon the value they add to services. So essentially, infrastructure is some big fixed capital asset, think, you know, roads, airports, power grids, etc., that people depend on to make money doing something else. Basically, I describe myself as, as kind of a space economist in this role with some added subtleties that I have to help figure out how to keep the revenue flowing. Besides from that, I was the principal investigator for the NASA-funded Nanorax LEO commercialization study. I've worked at the Department of State, the World Bank, and I've traveled quite a bit. So that's a little bit about me. What will the space economy be in 20 or 40 years? First of all, I, I hope and genuinely believe that a space economy will exist in 20 to 40 years. I think enough political exigency exists today to build permanent crewed space platforms, space stations. I have the good fortune to be closely involved with one of those, Starlab. While I agree that humans are super demanding in terms of resources in space, where everything is always trying to kill us, and robots might be cheaper, I believe that humans' neediness is also kind of a blessing, right? It creates demand for ancillary services. Think about it. Resupply, repair, maintenance, entertainment, generally stuff to do, all the things that make up a human life. The demand that's generated merely to keep people alive doesn't even get into the opportunities that open volume on orbit presents to folks on Earth. Open volume like space platforms that that are built for researchers. So you, you got research, innovation, and discovery enabled by space. Where permanent presence in space exists, so exists demand both in space for supplies from Earth and on Earth for content and goods generated on orbit. And where demand exists, natural supply follows. As supply follows, information about price spreads. And it is our task to create a policy environment to both facilitate that and keep it open, free, and fair for all participants. I think we've taken the first step by beginning programs like NASA's CDFF or Commercial Destinations Free Flyers efforts, of which Voyager is a part. And as we progress down that path, I think the space economy will become more real. Welcome, Gurdeep. It's a pleasure to have you with me on the episode focused on the future of autonomous systems. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Really excited about, to talk about this topic and have listened to you, you know, in Microsoft's uh, Executive Briefing Center talk about the future of AI. And I was really blown away about your vision and, you know, continue to find your name in, if I'm just searching for autonomous systems in the future, like you're there, you're there talking to other leaders on the topic and really grateful to have you here with us. Can you spend a minute giving the listeners a bit more about your background? Great, absolutely. Jeff, I'm a a long-time Microsoft employee. I joined in 1990, and I'm kind of like the kid who got to go back into the candy store about three times at least. The 90s for me was really about working on operating systems. I was part of the Windows NT founding team. You know, we shipped Windows NT 3.1, and then I worked on, you know, the Windows operating systems all the way to Windows XP. In particular, I was focused mostly on networking areas, but also uh, contributed a little bit towards the core OS as well. So after that, I moved on to work on real-time communications and started that business for Microsoft, which today is now Teams, but went through Link and Skype for Business and 
And during that, I also ran Skype after the acquisition of Skype a few years after that. And then my the third chapter, if you will, really has been on AI. And, you know, I got that in two parts. Uh, one was before, you know, deep learning had really sort of happened. So we're still in the world of machine learning, still data-driven, but machine learning. And then, of course, uh, for the last six years, I've been working on AI pretty much with deep learning as sort of the core engine in a variety of different ways. So that's my background. I'm My specific focus is to look at emergent technologies, emergent AI, and to see how we can create new categories for the company. And autonomous systems is one of the categories that we have created, and we are doing more and more in now. Let's jump to the future. So if we imagine, you know, what do autonomous systems look like 20 years from now? What are some of the, the biggest problems you see autonomous? You said, hey, it could apply everywhere. But as we think about the world and where we're going, there's been a lot of concern recently. How do you envision autonomous systems, you know, solving some of these, these big problems? I expect that autonomous systems will run large parts of the world in the next 20 years. Convinced of that. And I think we, you know, as a society, as a sort of generation, I mean, we've seen COVID and we've seen what a devastation it had on global production and global supply and and so on. And then, you know, that's sort of one big problem. Uh, The other big problem is, you know, this climate change is sort of creating very, very quickly very novel problems for humanity. And I expect autonomous systems to really, really play an incredible role. I'll give you a couple of very tangible examples. You know, we've seen recently the fires. In fact, right now in New Mexico, there's these fires going on in in California. And some of the fires, you know, we know were started by power lines. And some were, of course, human. So the power lines, like an intractable task for the power companies to inspect power lines across the state of California. It's just not feasible. If you had drones which could do that for you, not only do that once, they could do that like every month. You could have drones inspecting every inch of power lines. And they could be, that's an example of how you could really impact safety. The other is, you know, firefighting. You know, we believe firefighting is a task that a swarm of Autonomous systems can working in a in a collaborative manner can actually really really do well without any risk to human life and so on. So I think that there is a whole. It's not just the efficiency of it. I think there is a, the kind of the new parameters that humans are dealing with. You know, then there are some more you know things that we've known for a while. Like if you look at Japan, you know, they have an aging workforce problem and. You know, for them, it is existential. Like they have to rely on, you know, autonomous capability. Otherwise, they cannot keep their offices running. They cannot keep their factories running and so on. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in this sort of this concept that, you know, the world, nature creates the problem and the solution. And I think that in some <laughs> ways, the nature is putting both these things in front of us. You know, hey, the world is changing and it's getting kind of crazy. But you know what? You have, you know, the antidote for that. And I believe autonomous systems is it. Where else do you see, you know, autonomous systems kind of solving problems? You hit on, you know, some of the the climate change and stuff like that. And you briefly mentioned, you know, some of the supply chain issues we've been having. Any other kind of core topics come to mind as far as the future and, and how you see this impacting the world? Yeah, I think, you know, absolutely supply chain is already, you know, we're starting to see movement on that front. I think, you know, robots in particular, 
back office, back, you know, working in the factory floor. And I mean, those things I expect to be all there. I think the maybe the, the hardest thing that we will eventually get to is when you have these autonomous systems literally working around us in homes, in schools. I think that requires just a, a level of polish <laughs> and completeness because, you know, we've seen even early days of computing, you know, that until you solve those things, you will never be able to penetrate the mass, uh, you know, populations and, and you should not. So I think that will take a lot of work and that's where a lot of the human factors come in and safety goes to a whole different level. No one's going to wear a hard hat, right, <laughs> in their homes right. and so on. So I think that I believe is going to be our, uh, the Jetsons moment when, you know, autonomous systems have really penetrated our lives. That's awesome. We heard from a, an outside expert that also does a lot of uh, space planning and workplace design. Uh, his name was Morton Jorgensen, and he talked about emotion, how emotion is actually part motion, essentially. He talked about the importance of motion and movement. My name is Morton Jorgensen. I am the CEO of Friday PM, and I've spent my whole career working with customers about workplace transformation and workplace strategy. And I'm massively passionate about how do we figure out the best way to work in the future. For some, that is connecting square meters to corporate strategy. But for others, it's also looking at it in a whole new perspective, which we do at Friday PM. So if we're looking at design and technology, that is actually the space that I operate in, in my daily life. I think there's two sides to this. One is we need to understand on a neurological level, almost down to an emotional level, how design impacts us when we work. We need to understand how colors affect our emotions, how smells affect our emotion. We need to understand what mode of light do I need to be in for different work types. As I talked about before, I need to have the right space for the right work mode. And that work mode needs to be designed to that specific situation I am in. I think we forget the importance of emotional states. I've said this to others in the past. I think most of us know how important emotions are during the day. We get happy, we get sad, we get frustrated. We go all over the spectrum during the day. But I think a big piece here is understanding what is emotion. And emotion in its word is emotion. It is energy in motion. And we can control that energy by understanding how design impacts us when we are in a physical state. I am a big believer that the world will be more decentralized and that we will, at some point, the pendulum will swing the other way from the urbanization that we see today. We see it already now. I see it in my network. People that have lived in, in London or in Copenhagen or in Shanghai or New York for a while, they start to readdress the way they live they might move a little bit out of the city to go into the city for work, or some of them have bought vacation houses away from the city, so they spent Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday there. They're still working, but they have multiple locations. So the impact for the office building, I think, is twofold. I think it is we will, as human beings, 
kind of take a stand on the life that we're living today. And then on the other side, I think technology will have a massive influence on the way office buildings look today. One simple fact, today office buildings are leased per company. You might go to a co-working space, but the majority of office spaces are leased by companies. So that means one company, one floor, or one company, three floors. You are not in an office building where you're mixing work work points around the office. So why shouldn't marketing from company A and company C have the ability to sit together because they can actually learn from each other. They're not competing. It's not competitive uh, pump companies, but they have a massive possibility to collaborate in the office. So I think mixed-use buildings will be a, a big piece. And I think we have fantastic real estate in the city that is only occupied by corporates. And I walked through London the other day at my travel here, at nine in the evening, it's empty, it's deserted areas. And I feel so bad for this because it's not utilized in the right way. So I think mixed use will be a big piece for office buildings in the future as well. I'm Kim Asperling and I'm the director of creative production at A Million Ads. And what we do at A Million Ads is essentially we create data-driven audio ads. So they run across all digital audio platforms. So if you're listening to podcasts or you're listening to music via digital radio, what does AI voice look like 10 to 20 years from now? Well, put simply, I really think it will be an integral part of our daily lives. It's going to be almost impossible to distinguish the difference between human and AI. Now, now something that we do really need to be wary of and considerate of is we really need to create trust and protect privacy in this new voice AI world. And it's going to become really, really important for advertisers who already, you know, struggle to gain trust. So fortunately, most ad tech companies are already doing this in the right way. But as always, it only takes one bad apple. So I think we're going to see a lot more regulations in place to keep up with the pace of ever-growing AI. My name is Ken Sims. I'm a founder of a consultancy called VUX World. We help organizations plan and execute customer experience strategies with a focus on artificial intelligence, and namely conversational AI and voice AI, which is what we're going to talk about today. If we jump ahead 10 to 20 years, any thoughts on what that could look like? Over the long term, things tend to happen a bit quicker than you might think. But in the short term, it feels as though progress is quite slow. So if you think about where we were five years ago, you know, 2018 or so, Amazon Alexa and the smart, and the smart speaker kind of movement was kind of just getting started, really. You know, there wasn't that many skills in the skill store. There wasn't that many devices on in people's homes. And so, you know, in five five years' time, like now, as in now, uh, from five years ago, the devices are everywhere. It's a household name. Everybody knows what it is, and it's, it's become established, essentially. The stuff around everything being voice-enabled was really hyped up in 2019. You know, you look at CES, and there's voice-enabled toilets, and there's voice-enabled this and voice-enabled that. <laughs> and I think where, where we've settled to, and I think COVID has played a, a big part in getting us to this point, which is that all the frivolities and all of the kind of like superfluous stuff, which was just put voice anywhere it can go, because it can go anywhere. 
anywhere. You just need a chip and a mic and an internet connection. It's really become about put voice where it deserves to be and where it should be. And so I think the next five years are going to be figuring that out. There may be coffee machines that actually don't have voice uh, control within them. There may be toilets that certainly don't because how lazy do you have to be? They aren't listening. The toilets are not listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you still got some degree of privacy. And so I actually think the next five years is going to be more about not voice being everywhere, but voice being in the places where it does its job best. And so, and I think that's what I would encourage anyone who's considering exploring voice technology to do is to not get carried away with the hype and some of this stuff that we're talking about, but be focused on where can it be applied to make sense for your business and sense for your customers. But in 10 years time, I hope certainly that we've broken through that and we are at a point where, as I mentioned, the pockets of the world, the Evernotes of the world, the the services that you use on a daily basis are accessible from any device and any modality fundamentally. And so if I want to take a note on my watch or if I want to, as we've been talking about this use case about reading articles to me, or if I want to check my bank balance, or if I want to, you know, move an appointment or set an appointment or join a Zoom meeting or whatever, whatever it is that I need to do, wherever I am and whatever device I've got with me or on me, I should really be able to do it from that. And increasingly so, voice is going to be a big part of the interface modality in those environments. Because I don't know if you if, if your listeners have, have used like a smartwatch or something like that, but tapping on a smartwatch is a nightmare. It just is. It's terrible. Typing on a phone to send a text message is a nightmare. Working your way through apps to get to the right place and tapping and swiping is just so long. <laughs> Those are the things that are going to start to disappear slowly but surely. Even on a computer, I dictate all my emails now. I dictate all the notes that I write. I'm using my voice for almost everything. And so maybe I'm a, I'm a bit of an anomaly in that respect, but I don't think I will be in 10 years time. I think that we're going to be using our voice more to get things done. However, I don't think we're going to be at the point where we've got ambient computing everywhere. It's going to be doing absolutely everything for us and it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. Thank you. You know, thank you for all the insights and wisdom as serious, like, you know, evangelists and leaders and loved hearing your thoughts and being just great to have you on the show. So thank you. The Future of Podcasts is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening. Thank you.